Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. I am indeed honored to uh, be able to uh, moderate the, the third panel, the third panel of Deterring and Defending Against North Korean Threats. Uh, today we have two great presenters uh, with uh, two, I think, very good papers. Hopefully everybody's had a chance to read them and then three discussants afterwards. As, as we did yesterday, uh, I'll let both of the, uh, the people who wrote the papers uh, talk about their papers. We'll then ask each one of the discussants to comment on the papers uh, and then allow the, the, the people who wrote the papers to make final, another set of comments and then we'll open up the questions. So I'll make sure that there's enough time for questions. Our first presenter is Dr. Kim Tae-woo. Uh, Dr. Kim, uh, is not a, a stranger to this organization. He has presented here before at the 31st of these different, and is actually on the board of directors also. Um, he has also uh, been in the past an advisor, pres or advisor professor to President Lee Myung Bok, and was really key and instrumental in the Defense Reform Bill of 2010 in Korea. Um, I, thought, I found his paper very interesting. The title of the paper, the DPRK Nuclear Issue after the Trump-Kim uh, summit in the future of the Iraq-U.S. alliance. And what you, uh, you will hear and what he will lay out today, I think is an interesting way to look at where we're headed to the future. He'll talk a little bit about uh, the new Cold War that he sees could be brewing in Northeast Asia that is enabled by China, and then lays out some strategies of North Korea and the United States in, if you will, a two-by-two -two matrix. A, a North Korea strategy which is defined either by goodwill, so North Korea does what Kim Jong-un has said they're going to do, they denuclearize, they open it up, or a strategy that he calls the ploy strategy, where um, it, the goal of this strategy is to work through time to decouple the ROC-US alliance, to alleviate sanctions, to remove US influence, and eventually working through reunification through the North Korean Juche ideology. So those two on the North Korean side, then on the U.S. side, he also looks at it from a two-perspective strategy. One of being a good cop, so we are all about protecting democracies and alliances around the world. Or the other strategy, which he calls dealmaker, which is America first strategy, economic nationalism, uh, is our approach to looking at alliance strategies. He'll then talk through a plan B, suppose the talks don't do well, and I think what's really critical is the last part, he'll talk through the alliance strategy for the future, looking not just at North Korea, but China also. Um, so Dr. Kim, we are very excited to, 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 uh, to get your thoughts on this, and I'd ask you to go ahead, please. Uh, one last comment for them, go up. Hopefully, Bruce Bennett will be here this, this morning <laughs> uh, uh, to be able to give his excellent paper. He is on the way, so I'm sure he'll be here by the time uh, it's his turn. It's my honor to see you again here. I remember I visited you when you were a sink CFC in South Korea. At that time, I remember I briefed North Korean nuclear situation. You, you may not remember where, but anyway, I did that. Thank you, everybody. I'd like to use the 25 minutes I will try. Uh, 
even though you have uh, my distributed uh, paper uh, that includes some misprints, so please focus on my slide presentation. Uh, okay, let me begin. When we put South Korea in the center, then we can see uh, South Korea is surrounded by many threatening elements. Uh, North Korea's nuclear issue, by far the number one threat, is still not solved yet. And uh, rising China, uh, this is really a headache, not only to the United States, but also many uh, countries surrounding uh, uh, China. China is now pursuing a kind of a hierarchical order toward the surrounding countries. And so it, it is pushing and bullying and with the arrogance and with the unilateral attitude. And this is a really problematic uh, to South Korea. And Russia is also returning as a military power. Uh, the Pacific fleet of Russian Navy is, is now going on, the reconstruction, and, and so, so many things are now happening militarily. Uh, Japan, uh, Japan is very important uh, cooperator for South Korea, but still uh, we have a very strong anti-Japanese sentiment among South Koreans. Some of that part are purposefully boosted by some forces. Uh, so this is again a big hurdle we have to get over. And uh, uh, alliance, today's alliance is not like it was. Uh, so this is a really problem that I will deal with more specifically next slide. And also internally, South Korea has its own problems. This is divided, it's seriously divided. Uh, even over security issues, we are divided. Uh, this is our problem, not US problem. This, our problem. We have to solve this anyway. Uh, shrinking economy. Uh, the current government is pursuing uh, some economic policies a little bit of a distant from the so-called economy uh, based on uh, market principles. And, uh, this type of uh, economic uh, policies will undermine the competitiveness of our nation. We, we know that. Everybody knows that. So. Uh, so, I don't know, the status, economic status of South Korea will go down. So this is our, our problems. So when we put the alliance in the center, uh, we also can see uh, the alliance is now surrounded by many threatening uh, elements. You know. uh, China dream, that's I think uh, the biggest uh, uh, hurdle we have to get over. You know. uh, the more uh, the vehemently U.S. and China uh, confront uh, within, of course, the, a structure of the new Cold War, what we call it, uh, then uh, our alliance will be in trouble uh, over what to or how to respond to this uh, rising China. And, and then the, uh, we have also uh, Alliance decoupling effect of North Korean nuclear weapons. Uh, probably uh, you will understand why North Korea is, has been developing long distance missiles targeting Guam Islands or even mainland US. You know. uh, but 800 kilometers or 1000 kilometers range will be simply enough in order to attack South Korea. But still, 
they uh, develop the longer distance y, it's game, it's brinkmanship game. In other words, it's game of uh, rationality of irrationality. Uh, they try to show irrational. By doing that, they are very rationally calculating what they can achieve by doing that. Uh, the, the target is, of course, shaking the public opinion in the United States, and then shake the alliance policy, and eventually uh, get the US out of Korean Peninsula. That has been their 70-year-old <coughs> dream. Uh, so this is so-called the decoupling effect of North Korea's nuclear weapons. Uh, another factor is the changes from uh, America itself too. Uh, actually, these days we are very often uh, surprised and shocked by remarks by President uh, Trump. Uh, he came up with uh, America first, <laughs> and then uh, a lot of slogans related to the, the economic nationalists. Or he seems to be quite ruthless in, in, in pressing uh, the so-called, you know, many things like uh, trade, you know, deficits. And, uh, right after the Singapore summit, he said he will suspend uh, the provocative a tremendously expensive work game. Actually, that is the language North Korea has been using. Uh, so we were shocked, frankly speaking. Uh, particularly, we, the supporters of Alliance, were really dismayed, uh, embarrassed. How can I express it? Uh, anyway, the, what I mean is uh, uh, we see some changes going on within the White House uh, regarding alliance policies. Uh, and also finally, the South Korea's political instability and thereby inconsistency in its policy is also a threatening element to uh, alliance. You know. uh, very frankly speaking, how longer can South Korea request the alliance policymakers in Washington to tolerate endlessly uh, disconnection and connection of uh, policies in, in South Korean government. The government changes in five years, then the next government may come up with the entirely different uh, uh, the security concept and the policy lines. And, uh, I don't think South Korea can and, and will request uh, U.S. policymakers to tolerate this endlessly. So, uh, these are the elements surrounding our alliance. So, so that's why we can say alliance is uh, in crisis. Okay, now uh, quickly uh, I will touch on the relations between uh, the Cold War situation and North Korea nuclear issues. Uh, both are uh, causes as well as consequences. Yeah, causes as well as consequences. Uh, North Korea nuclear issue can be a, a, a result, a consequence of the their uh, uh, confrontation, the Cold War confrontation. Because whenever the confrontation becomes serious, uh, then U.S. and, and, and China uh, just simply arguing, fighting in the arena of the U.N. Uh, how to deal with North Korean issues. Uh, then North Korea simply enjoyed the cranny 
of that confrontation. Uh, so North Korea so far continued uh, their nuclear weapon development despite opposition of the U.S. and international community. Uh, and also at the same time, uh, North Korea's U.S. issue is a cause that can deepen the uh, Cold War confrontation. Whenever North Korea uh, uh, commits some provocations, such as a nuclear test or launch of uh, long-range missiles, then again, uh, U.S. and China confront in, in, in the U.N. Uh, how to deal with this, you know. So, uh, in, in that process, in that process, uh, I found uh, this kind of phenomena, which I called uh, China, North Korea, nuclear collusion. I think uh, this expression this is not exaggeration. You know. uh, for a long time, China officially participated in sanctioning uh, North Korea. But uh, behind the scene, uh, China has been trying so eagerly to keep North Korean regime afloat. So uh, this is kind of a double play, double play. So, so I call it, uh, this is a collusion. Uh, this collusion is inevitable when we think of uh, Cold War confrontation. Uh, from the Chinese perspective, North Korea is the only military ally so it cannot tolerate demise of North Korea. And also, uh, North Korea's nuclear weapons is also their strategic asset. North Korean nuclear weapons can accumulate the fatigue on the part of the U.S. It checks Japan, and by doing that, it can help uh, China check and uh, check the whole the U.S. and U.S.-led alliances. And, uh, this is geostrategic uh, things going on in, in that area, you know. So the China has no reason to eradicate North Korea's nuclear capabilities at all. You know? So we should understand this type of uh, structure uh, happening there in that area. Uh, the problem is, uh, uh, for the time being, uh, China stopped that collusion uh, as uh, President Trump really pushed hard uh, toward uh, China and declare the trade war, uh, then momentarily I think uh, China stopped that collusion, but that collusion can revive anytime, can revive anytime. If uh, the current uh, nuclear peace process come back to the starting point, then immediately I think the collusion will revive. You know, this is my expectation. Okay. Uh, this slide shows, I will not spend much time on this page, you know, everybody knows that what's happening in China, you know. Uh, China is uh, intoxicated with the rising power. Uh, President Xi is also enjoying his increasing power, and he's now centralizing his power. Uh, he pursed uh, all opponents from politics and, and military, and he revised the constitution, so-called he can prolong his uh, presidency. And, and uh, right side, you already uh, knows that the string of polls and nine-dish strategy and one belt, one road, and uh, all purpose, purpose of all these strategies to get uh, to get rid of U.S. influence, naval influences in the Western Pacific and Indian Ocean, and to make 
the Southeast Sea and the Yellow Sea uh, as their internal waters. Uh, so this kind of development is, is going on. Nobody can stop it. Uh, I think it's unstoppable, insatiable, unquenchable. It's very strong. We realize that uh, when uh, China bashed South Korea during the past couple of years over deployment of a THAAD. Uh, deploying THAAD is our live or die problems, right? But uh, China is intervening uh, unilaterally, illogically. And, and, uh, so personally, I decided, okay, uh, we cannot stop China. We cannot stop China. Probably the U.S. may not be stop China, uh, if not united with allies. So if U.S. does not curb the rise of China in this manner, uh, I think sooner or later U.S. will uh, face very strong challenge in Western Pacific and Indian Ocean, and the South China Sea and Yellow Sea will become the internal waters of China, and U.S. sphere of influence will be retreated beyond the South Korean. Uh, Korean Peninsula and uh, will not come back easily. You know. uh, then a history in the future will record it. It was a Trump line uh, rather than a chastened line, you know, another Trump line. Uh, so this is the way I look into the future of my area. You know. So I hope you will uh, join in this way. Okay, uh, this slides, uh, I summarize the North Korea's uh, WMD capabilities. Okay, I will skip, you probably know that. And the Panmunjom Declaration, uh, also, you already know what happened. I will just pick up uh, just a couple of problematic you know, part of this uh, declaration. You know. There, in this document, uh, South and North Korean president agreed that uh, the denuclearization of Korean Peninsula is a common goal for South and North Korea. This is a really problematic sentence. Uh, probably the ordinary U.S. citizens uh, may not uh, notice that, but uh, to our eyes, it is really problematic. North Korea is the only part having nuclear weapons. Why should it be a common goal for South and North Korea? Uh, here we have to remember uh, so-called uh, Joseon Peninsula. The denuclearization of Joseon Peninsula is our goal. This is what the uh, late Kim Il-sung said when he was alive. At that time, he meant what he meant was uh, we have to remove the U.S. tactical uh, nuclear weapons from the South Korea. And after he, his death, his son, Kim jong he said, okay, my father's will was uh, declared the denuclearization of Joseon Peninsula. Joseon is the old name of Korea, okay? So uh, what he meant is, oh, okay, we should get rid of the nuclear umbrella provided to South Korea, and we should remove any nuclear influence on the part of, of the United States. This is what he meant. Now, his grandson, Kim Jong-un, is, is also saying, uh, the denuclearization of the Joseon Peninsula is our goal. I'm, I'm very clear that this means 
U.S. should remove first its influence, nuclear influence from the Korean Peninsula. And then we will think of our own denuclearization. This is what they mean by saying denuclearization of the Joseon Peninsula. Then this Joseon Peninsula is translated into English, denuclearization of Korean Peninsula. And then this English now translated again into South Koreans. Denuclearization of a Korean Peninsula. So this is a this is a game of language, game of language. So the Panmunjom Declaration accepted this this language, what North Korea has been enjoyed. You know. uh, so Panmunjom Declaration, uh, of course, uh, could mean a, a good steps toward uh, mutual coexistence and co prosperity between two Koreas. But nevertheless, it includes problems like this. You know. Uh, again, in Singapore, exactly the same pattern, same language was accepted by the President Trumps. So I think I have to spend a little bit more time here, uh, the Singapore summit. Uh, we opened the box with a high expectation, but it was empty. Uh, that was uh, many South Korean pundits said right after the Singapore summit. Uh, President Trump accepted the language North Korea used when they used in Panmunjom Declaration. And then uh, there was no uh, such thing as denuclearization timeline, roadmap, or, or nothing substantial about the intensity and speed and procedure of denuclearization. Uh, this is why many uh, people, many uh, experts said, okay, uh, it was a diplomatic victory on, on part of Kim Jong-un, not on part of President Trump. You know? So anyway, uh, this is very, a very frank uh, assessment right after the summit. Uh, and then as I told you a moment ago, uh, President uh, Trump said, you know, uh, we will stop provocative and uh, expensive war game. And uh, after that, he even said uh, sending a strategy bombers to Korean Peninsula is something like crazy. Uh, my quotation, my quotation of, of words may not be correct or exact. Anyway, he said to that effect. You know. uh, so his remarks, many of his remarks uh, reflected uh, capriciousness or frequent changes or uh, disrespect to alliance or something like that. So that's why uh, supporters of alliance in Seoul are shocked and shocked again. Uh, this is uh, what is happening actually. Uh, then, okay, this is the main part uh, of my presentation. Then what will happen from now on? Uh, we have to first of all think about the two hypotheses about North Korea's motive. Number one, hypothesis number one is the goodwill hypothesis. This hypothesis suppose uh, North Korea should have very good will. Uh, he determined to uh, abandon nuclear capabilities and change his, his nation to a good one. You know? So this is hypothesis. The second hypothesis is that 
Uh, North Korea is doing this game for the purpose of their strategy against uh, South Korea. As I told you, uh, their main purpose in their 70-year-old strategy toward South Korea has been removal of alliance. With the alliance there, uh, they can do nothing. They know that, we know that, you know that. Uh, so this is the so-called ploy hypothesis. So we have to think of two hypotheses. And then, uh, about the role and principle of uh, Trump administration, also we think of two hypotheses. The first hypothesis is a good cop hypothesis. That means uh, US, uh, despite all difficulties and changes these days, uh, but eventually will play a, a, a role of good cop protecting the global liberal democracy and respecting the fate of allies. Uh, this is good cop, good cop theory. And the second one is so-called uh, deal-maker role. Uh, President Trump showed a very strong commercial, commercial approach, uh, even toward the alliance policies. And then he tried to achieve something uh, try to make some deals uh, that can be his own uh, political basis, probably for re-election or for by-election or whatever. So uh, this hypothesis uh, suppose uh, President Trump's uh, personality and uh, U.S. commercialism uh, will be applied in negotiating with, with North Korea. So, so we, I specified the four hypotheses. The question is, uh, what combination will be made in the future? This is a really critical question. If North Korea's good cop hypothesis is combined with the U.S. good cop hypothesis, I mean the goodwill plus good cop hypothesis, then I think the situation will be fine. Uh, the denuclearization process will be smooth, and the U.S. will respect South Korea's security and will not uh, make any lavish concessions uh, to North Korea. So this is the best scenario. The second scenario is North Korea's goodwill hypothesis plus uh, U.S. Uh, deal-maker hypothesis. In this case, South Korea is not dangerous either. Uh, even though uh, U.S. government can give in very lavish concessions to North Korea, uh, but the North Korea doesn't have any bad will, any dangerous motive inside, uh, then I think South Korean security will be okay. The third one, North Korea has a ploy hypothesis, and then this is confronted by good cop role of United States. Uh, then uh, the following nuclear talks will go aground eventually. You know. Then the uh, North Korea's nuclear thing will come back to the starting point, and South Korea or Korean government, Korean peninsula will be surrounded again by crisis and confrontation. Uh, finally, number four, a combination of uh, ploy hypothesis and uh, deal maker hypothesis. Okay, this situation is worst case for South Korean fate. You know. uh, in this case, deal will be, uh, of course, made. 
Uh, North Korea will demand many things to South Korea, uh, the, to the United States, you know. Uh, of course, with a bad mind, you know, uh, to kind of motive, kind of ploy to shaken the alliance and to finally uh, demolish the alliance. And, and then the U.S. side, the President uh, Trump administration, Oh, okay, that's okay. Uh, my goal is achievement, diplomatic achievement. So the concessions can be given so easily. And then the South Korea's government said, oh, okay, congratulations. Anyway, the deal is now made. Uh, so ironically, amid self-celebration of all three governments, Pyongyang, Seoul, and the US, South Korean security uh, can go to hell. Uh, uh, probably there will be a, a, a widespread of illusion of peace within South Korea, and then the South Korean youngsters will demand a, 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 a signing of a peace treaty at early time, uh, like the situation right before the uh, right right after Paris uh, peace uh, agreement in Vietnam, you know. Uh, and then still three governments uh, keep smiling and, uh, and happy over what they have achieved diplomatically. Uh, and then the alliance is no longer strong or healthy. So this is a really uh, die or live crossroad. Uh, again, I'd like to remind that uh, in scenario three, we can have a crisis. And in scenario four, we can have a scenario, uh, crisis. Uh, the scenario in the, the, the crisis in, in scenario three, that is not really that serious, because uh, everybody now disillusioned uh, from what North Korea's motive was, and then people can be united, and then we can uh, get some help from alliers. But the, uh, the, in the last crisis. Uh, this is an internal division within South Korean society and with no help from alliance. But this is a really serious situation. I think our pundits over here, experts and, and government, should cooperate each other uh, to avoid the final number four uh, crisis. And that was my actually keep uh, body. Uh, in this slide, I have listed some reasons why uh, we should also prepare uh, for rainy days also. Uh, I think uh, the Moon Jae-in government, my government is doing its best to open up a new uh, peaceful road with North Korea. So as a South Korean citizen, I of course support that effort. But I'd like to point out that uh, my government, Seoul government, should also consider the possibility of bad scenarios also. Uh, that means it is not right time to reduce our uh, defense capabilities. Or this is not right time to talk about peace treaty. Or, uh, so what I mean is, uh, please don't go too fast. Please don't go too fast. Uh, do both, actually, uh, reconciliation with the North Korea, dialogue with North Korea. Okay, this is good. But at the same time, uh, preparation against the uh, worst case scenario, uh, strengthening alliance and for the purpose of uh, security, uh, 
this is also very important. So as long as my government uh, pursue two things simultaneously, yes, I'm ready to support. But if uh, my government is concentrating only a good scenarios, uh, disregarding uh, the possibility of uh, worst case scenarios, then we will uh, keep speaking out. Uh, all right, okay, final part. This is my last part. Okay, uh, this is my final message. Uh, what kind of alliance uh, should we pursue in the future? Uh, I think both nations need uh, rethinking, I think. Uh, South Korea should not request endlessly that uh, U.S. should tolerate uh, the change in government and change in, in policies in Seoul endlessly. Uh, this is our problem. And we, we should solve this problem anyway, internally. Uh, and also South Korean government as a pundits and military should realize realistically Without participating the U.S. global strategy, the key global strategy, that is the uh, Indo-Pacific uh, strategy, uh, talking about alliance is just rhetoric. We should know that. And without uh, strengthening our security cooperation among three countries, South Korea, Japan, and U.S., uh, then again, uh, talking about how to strengthen how to cement our alliances this is again rhetoric you know so we should be very realistic uh, still south korean government is keeping silent to the u.s request to participate in the indo-pacific uh, strategy uh, i hope my government will give answer as quickly as, as is possible you know and also here uh, we have to rethink equidistant diplomacy. Uh, many South Korean officials uh, seems to believe that uh, China is also very important, as important as the U.S. But uh, uh, for realistic uh, expert, security expert, uh, like uh, me probably or my colleagues here, uh, China is just important. But the China cannot South Korea in case of contingencies. China is North Korea's uh, ally. Uh, so there is only one country we can hope uh, assistance in case of Korean contingency. So we have to distinguish, we, we should dis di differentiate this situation. So that's why I personally have been arguing very strongly South Korea should adopt the so-called alliance plus hatching policy line. That means we should put alliance in the center, and then we should hit South Korea, trying to get better uh, ties with China. And of course, it's, it's not wise to have a hostile attitude toward China. I don't mean that. I don't mean we should that way. You know. We should try, of course, to get friendship from China, but we should put the alliance in the center. You know. So that's what the South Koreans should keep in mind, I think, uh, whether or not the current government is doing that, okay, I don't know. But anyway, that's what the South Koreans should keep in mind. And to the United States, I, I also have my final message. Uh, 
Do you think, are there any other country except the South Korea uh, where uh, the whole system, social systems, political systems, religious systems, and, and values are like Americans? When you visit South Korea, uh, there are so many churches, three, four churches, even within one block in the city, the Christianity. That's, that's now settled down as the main culture. And we have democracy, and uh, we have uh, market economy, principles, and everything. Oh, this is, came through alliance, you know. I, I think South Korea is the only country like that. And South Korea, a long time ago, it was a country of superstition. But now South Korea is a Christian country, right? Uh, so if U.S. government simply count money-wise profitability and then decide the alliance policies, uh, then uh, our alliance uh, can be killed sooner or later. Uh, so uh, that's why if President Trump, uh, if just if President Trump's, uh, for the purpose of making deal, can be very generous to North Korea, and then uh, give anything they want, undermining South Korean security, peace treaty, okay, stopping the, the suspension of uh, war game, and okay, anything. And then he can say, oh, this is what your government want. If he says so, I will be disappointed. I think this is not what the leader of a superpower leading the world security system and economic market can say. I don't think this is the, what the leader of superpower can say. So that's why I'd like to emphasize that our alliance should stand on people-to-people -people relations rather than government-to-government -government relations. Government can change any time, but the people-to-people -people relations, that doesn't change. We should construct a alliance standing firmly on people-to-people -people relations. That's it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Kim. Excellent presentation and some very good thoughts. Um, the next presentation will be by Dr. Bruce Bennett. I think most people know Bruce. He's uh, been to the region over what is by 110, it's probably up to 140 now or something like that. Uh, been with the Rand Corporation uh, for, for many years, but also done some, it's also done some other things during that time period as a, as a professor at the University of California and at the National Defense University, and then also had some time working for SAIC. Um, and Dr. Bennett is again going to talk about um, deterrence, uh, Sustaining an optimal structure for deterrence against the North Korean threat. He's going to examine ways or examine North Korea's objectives, capabilities, and strategies, and then historically looked at what has worked uh, deterrence wise. And then the most important, I think, is the last part where he will go over his thoughts on additional strategies to deter. Um, North Korea as we move through uh, the future. So Bruce, look forward to your comments. Thanks. Thank you, uh, Skip. I appreciate the opportunity of speaking with you today, and I have to apologize for being late. I made the faulty assumption that the metro system would work. Uh -huh. <laughs> 
And uh, as we sat 20 to 30 minutes just short of the Lafont Plaza station, as they had some problem on the line, I discovered that was a bad assumption. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, structuring the alliance and how we move forward. As we do, I'm going to also follow up on some things that uh, my good friend Dr. Kim mentioned, in particular some things like North Korean objectives. I think we would all agree that the North Korean number one objective is regime survival. There is less agreement on exactly what the number two <laughs> objective is. But it appears to be, and certainly doctrinally they say it is, unification of the peninsula under North Korean control. Fundamentally, that's what Kim Jong-un said on January 1st when he gave his New Year's Day address and mentions unification a dozen times. He wasn't talking about South Korean-led unification. That should be simple to understand. So... He has an interest in going in that direction. We can debate exactly what that means and how it would come about. But from that beginning, let's think a little bit about how we deter North Korea, because that says our deterrence needs to be a little broader than just nuclear weapons. Um, so I'll start talking about the threats that we're facing, and then turn to how we deter those threats, both in the near-term future but also in the longer term. So let me start off by saying I think we have to recognize what nuclear weapons do to a conflict in Korea. Now, the first through the fifth North Korean nuclear test, yeah, they were in the one, 10 kiloton range, a little bit less for most of them. Uh, a weapon that size going off in Seoul is going to cause a lot of damage. But if you go with the sixth test, and at least some estimates saying it was 250 kilotons, we are talking about a huge amount of damage. Now, there are a lot of people who are saying, well, let's not put too much pressure on North Korea because we could have a crisis, whatever. I don't want North Korea to have any nuclear weapons. I mean, this kind of damage, even if it's the smaller weapon, but certainly if it's the bigger, I want zero of those ever going off. And so I support an effort of trying to get complete, verifiable, and irreversible dismantlement. Now I draw a little bit of a difference from my colleague uh, Dr. Kim in the sense that I look at the April 27th agreement and I think Item 4.3, 4.4 are not the most important, or 3.3, 3.4 are not the most important ones. I think item 1.1 is where the two leaders pledged to do a thorough implementation of all previous agreements. If you look at the 1992 denuclearization agreement, it is very simple and very clear. North Korea will have no nuclear weapons, they won't acquire any, they won't produce any, they won't have uranium enrichment, they won't have plutonium reprocessing. That is CBID. Kim Jong-un has now agreed to CBID. The Americans don't need to negotiate that with him. He's already agreed to it. 
We shouldn't give him anything for it because he's agreed to it. And when his propaganda organizations this week said, oh, anybody who talks about CBID is a traitor to North Korea, well, I think he needs to understand that he gets needs to get his propaganda organizations under control so they're not calling him a traitor because he's agreed to it. So that's what nuclear weapons can do. Our chemical and biological weapons, not quite so bad, but they're still bad. If we're going to have a peace treaty, we really don't want any of those weapons there. They're too big a threat. And people might say, well, but he's not going to use them against cities. He's, you know, really a good guy we can trust. We have to remember that his father in 1993 told his grandfather, if we lose a conflict, I will be sure to destroy the earth. What good is the earth without North Korea? And I'm told by defectors this kind of statement is still posted in multiple locations in Pyongyang. Um, I think we need to recognize that this is a regime which doesn't have our long-term best interest in mind. So, what do we make of the different North Korean nuclear weapon tests? Well, I took the six tests here. I did took one open estimate of what the yields of those weapons are. And I said, what happens if you put one of those off on Yoido, on the subway station there? Um, just to kind of give us a reference point of how serious that damage might be. It gives you an idea of how bad a situation we're talking about. And notice that with the last one, the radius of effects for a 5 PSI blast, enough to knock down most buildings, is 4.4 kilometers. How far is the National Assembly from that subway station? What, a kilometer or two? Um, so we're talking about weapons that have some real threat. Uh, but let me take it to Camp Humphreys. A uh, little hard to see Camp Humphreys underneath the nuclear effects shown here, but you'll see certainly over just down and to the right of the big explosion, the runway that sits at Camp Humphreys. If you look at the 5 PSI circle, the gray circle, it totally covers Camp Humphreys and then some. The notion of consolidating to a single base made a lot of sense when we were talking about a conventional threat. When you're talking about a nuclear threat and an adversary who is prepared to use them, in part because, think about it, South Korea's kill chain is a preemptive concept. You've told North Korea that you're going to preempt their nuclear and uh, missile forces. And what has North Korea responded? Well, they're going to preempt your preemption. If they're preempting your preemption, what are they using? What kind of weapons? It sounds to me like nuclear and missile forces that they're trying to get to survive. So we're in a stage where we need to be transitioning our thinking about what a conflict on the peninsula might look like and trying to deal with that and deter that. All right, so what about conventional forces? Are we comfortable with the relative conventional forces? Well, people will say, oh, U.S. and ROC forces are so much higher quality than the North Korean forces. But I have to tell you, the statement quoted to Joseph Stalin that quantity has a quality all of its own. 
Um, I worry about that. You don't stabilize a country, if we ever have to do that in North Korea, with a bunch of automatons. You need to have people to do that. And as the Rock Army now is probably, this was 2016, probably down around 480,000. But if you go to a military in South Korea by 2022 of 500,000, which is what President Moon has said, that's an army presumably of about 365,000. And that's too small to stabilize North Korea, I would argue even if it takes no attrition before it's stabilizing. So we're transitioning in ways that we need to be doing more thinking about. And in particular, I go to, again, the April 27th agreement. It talks about disarming. Wouldn't conventional arms control be about that? Wouldn't, shouldn't that be dealing with this disparity? So I'll talk a little bit about where I think we need to go on that. All right, so how do we deal with the North Korean threats? The deterrence framework is really very simple. You're trying to convince an adversary that the cost of actions, an invasion of South Korea, for example, is greater than the benefits he's going to derive. And you've got two ways, fundamentally, of influencing that. You can either increase the punishment, increase his cost, or you can better deny his ability to gain his objectives. And I think we need to be doing both in this kind of case. This is not a static situation. He's been developing new weapons like the KN-09, the 300 millimeter rockets. He's been developing nuclear weapons. Who knows what all else he's been developing. If we want to deter, we need to be actively working this. And in particular, looking at how we counter the capabilities he feels. So, where do we go on that? All right, our history of deterring North Korea, well, certainly after the 1950s Korean War, we've done a pretty good job. But we face a problem. Problem is called the stability-instability paradox. When both sides are convinced that it's not a good idea to go to a big war again, that's stability, then there is a tendency for both sides to think about more limited types of activities. And certainly for North Korea, limited war has been something it has done for decades. Limited attacks, and they know we're not going to go and try to destroy the regime or something like that because we know what the implications of that kind of escalation are. So we've got to deal with that. Interestingly, from the 50s up through 2008, we were not sufficiently convinced that we were in good, or through the early 1990s, I should say, we were not sufficiently convinced that our conventional forces were adequate, and so we deployed a lot of nuclear weapons on the peninsula, starting in the late 1950s. Finally, in the early 90s, we pulled them out because now we're convinced we have adequate conventional capabilities. And if you fight only a conventional war in Korea, I think, yeah, I think we don't have a problem. The problem we face is the North Korean developments of chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons that have occurred. 
since 2009 as we become convinced that the first nuclear test in 2006 looked like it might be a fizzle, but 2009 they test again and it's much more serious. You go to 2010, they sink the Chonan, they shell Yoido, or they show uh, Yongpyong Island. Um, we're convinced that there's some more serious intent on the North Korean part. So what's happened? We've done a bunch of new initiatives. Um, one of which I think has gotten less than I would hope would be the amount of visibility. The 2008 Nuclear Posture Review has two sentences about North Korean nuclear weapon use, and they basically say the same thing right back to back. The second one says there is no scenario in which the Kim regime could employ nuclear weapons and survive. That doesn't say we would use nuclear weapons, but we all know how the Kim regime bunkers <coughs> itself underground and so forth. There's a pretty strong implication that if we're going to do that, that could well employ nuclear weapons. Um, I think that kind of threat is one of the better kinds of threats against the regime. I sure wish, though, that we were prepared to say this more often, and not just in a document that the North Koreans might dismiss because we don't say it more often. So, how do we deter North Korea in the near future? Well, the best option for deterring North Korea is the one that President Moon hopes he's going to achieve, which is to gain peaceful coexistence. I don't oppose peaceful coexistence. I think it would be good if we could get it. I'm skeptical that we can, but I think it's at least worth a try. So, in the April 27th uh, declaration, it talks about this, in this year, 2018, trying to get to a peace treaty. So what are the requirements for a peace treaty? It talks about having real and lasting peace, or words similar to that. I think to have real and lasting peace, you need at least four conditions that I identify here. No North Korean nuclear weapons, no chemical and biological capabilities, conventional arms control, and ending the North Korean hostility towards the U.S. ROC. The points on the nuclear weapons in chem and bio are pretty straightforward. Let me make just a point on the other two. Conventional arms control. In Europe, we faced massive Soviet superiority in quantity for a long period of time. As the Cold War was drawing to an end, we got into what were called the conventional forces in Europe negotiations of reducing those forces. Most people said, well, you know, what's the percentage we could reduce each side to make it more stable? And the answer was, well, if you reduce the defense very much, you were going to open holes in the defense. So the alternative that was perceived is we ought to go down to equal ceilings of forces that the Soviets could have so many tanks and we could have the same number of tanks. That meant the Soviets were going to make a 60 or 70 percent reduction after we made only a 10 or 20 percent reduction. And we thought the Soviets would never agree to that because it was so, so disadvantageous to them. But they did. I think we need the same kind of reductions here. I don't want North Korea having a 
million-man army minus 20%, I think we ought to have an agreement that says both sides should have an army no larger than, uh, to start with, 500,000. Now, you might say Kim Jong-un is never going to agree to that. But remember in the early 1990s, North Korea proposed in the early 1990s that both countries go down to a military force no bigger than 300,000. They've already proposed equal ceilings. We should say, like your concept, want to agree to that. The other part, ending hostility. North Korea is always talking about our hostility towards North Korea. But tell me, how often do you train your toddlers in how to bayonet North Koreans? Or do we in America? And yet, that's a part of the indoctrination, as I understand it, in North Korea. North Korean hostility is far more serious than our hostility. And do we really think that we can have true and lasting peace if North Korea keeps telling its people that we are the enemy, we're responsible for everything that goes wrong? Doesn't that have to change? I'm going to talk a little bit about war fighting in a WMD environment on my next slide. I think we have to adjust in that direction. But in order to do any of this, we've got to improve our intelligence. I won't say much about that here. We've got to be able to deal with North Korean provocations and limited attacks. I will talk about that. Deal with their subversion of the rock. You know, I look at Kim Jong-un right now. Looks to me like he's running for rock president in 2022. They're trying to popularity he's trying to generate. Now, that's a little bit extreme. But is he running for the leadership of a rock North Korean confederation? that could be set up in the same time frame. Because President Moon seems to like that idea, the Confederation idea. And finally, I think we've got to counter North Korean WMD proliferation. That's something we need to deter. Let me talk about war fighting, in a, especially a nuclear environment. You've got all kinds of things that the North Koreans have to go through in order to cause nuclear effects against the South. And we've got a variety of responses. These turn on interdiction, eliminating the weapons, intelligence collection, active defenses. We haven't perfected any of this yet, but we're making progress. But a lot of this has to be done before a conflict ever starts. If you don't have missile defenses in place, you can't use them. So they've got to exist, and we need to be looking if our objective is zero North Korean nuclear weapons going off in South Korea, are we there yet? Do we have those capabilities in place? Now, in part, you can also do it through arms control. We can talk about retaliatory threats. We can talk about pretreatments. Um, I think we have to recognize that even though Kim Jong-un has claimed he has a button on his desk for launching nuclear weapons, I don't think he does. And I'm disappointed that someone hasn't said if he does, who's he targeting? Because he's claimed he's not targeting South Korea, but doesn't look like he's got missile systems that can reliably target anybody else right now. So I don't think he's got that button and that capability. I think he's got an order that he 
chief of the general staff or the chief of the, of the strategic forces to launch weapons. They have to order missile-based commander who has to order the crews. That gives us multiple levels at which to disconnect, at which we should be deterring. Where are our psychological operations? Are we trying to do deterrence at those various levels today? And if not, why not? You know, I worry that this situation, if it ever develops that North Korea uses nuclear weapons, you remember what happened after Pearl Harbor with the Americans. The two American commanders at Pearl Harbor at the time were put in a court-martial um, because they hadn't properly prepared. I don't think we want that to happen with our commanders here. Now, after weapon delivery, we have lots of things we can also do. Passive defense, consequence management. But I don't want to have to be depending on this. There's not a lot of deterrence leverage of these things. You know, going into suits uh, doesn't deter North Korea very well. Um, and we also have to learn how to operate in this environment. Um, I would argue our operations need to be, in many ways, very different. And I'd be happy to discuss that further, but my time is running short. Let me turn to what I think we ought to be doing with Kim Jong-un right now. Number one, I think we need to be emphasizing that he's already agreed to CBID. This is not a point of debate. It's done. It's there. He's accepted it. We're moving forward. Number two, he's not doing it. In fact, if you look at the potential ramp-up of weapons, and we don't know whether he's on this lower ramp or on the higher one, but he's somewhere in that range, maybe a little higher. Um, what's he been doing since January 1st when he starts this charm offensive? He hasn't been reducing nuclear weapons. He hasn't been denuclearizing. He's been building nuclear weapons. So shouldn't we go to Kim Jong-un and say, um, you know, you said you're going to dismantle, you're going to abandon nuclear weapons, you're going to denuclearize, whatever the term you want to use is. You probably made four or five or six nuclear weapons since January 1st. We want you to surrender them. Because until you surrender them, you haven't even met the requirements of the Chinese freeze for freeze. So, you know, you're violating what the Chinese have asked you to do. We want you to get rid of those weapons, and that would be a first opportunity to take on the whole process of elimination of North Korean nuclear weapons. As we think about deterring North Korea in the longer term, you look at the chart just before, I don't want to see a world where North Korea has 200 <coughs> nuclear weapons. I think that's a nightmare world for us. We may be able to defend against 20 or 30 or 50, but you get up into the hundreds and it's a different world. So I think we do, with vigor, need to pursue complete, verifiable, and irrevocable dismantlement. Now look, I'm not a fool. He's going to cheat. The day Kim Jong-un says he has zero nuclear weapons left, if he ever does, He's probably got 10 or 15 stashed away someplace where we're not going to find them. But I far prefer that outcome than him having 100 or 200. I'm not prepared to give up everything to get to that outcome, 
but I want that outcome better than a bigger amount. Um, I think we need to start with him surrendering what he's already made this year, and I think we need to have him disable his nuclear weapon assembly facilities. How do we do that? We always talk about when we do, uh, when we do uh, arms control with these kinds of things that we need a full declaration of what he's done in his nuclear program. I'm prepared to start with a lesser declaration. Have him tell me what nuclear reactors he has, what weapon assembly facilities he has, what uranium enrichment facilities he has, and what plutonium reprocessing facilities he has. It should take him about an hour to compile that list, names and locations. That's all I need to start with. Eventually I want the full list, but if I can disable all ten of those roughly facilities, he's not making nuclear weapons. And I know he's going to cheat on that. I know he's not going to list some of his facilities, but that gives me an initial opportunity to raise verification and to ask him, I want to go tomorrow to see this facility over here because I think it should have been on your list and it wasn't. We have to remember that North Korea and Kim in particular has been playing to the rock audience for six months now. And we haven't done a very good job of countering that play. We've got to call it. You know, in the poker game, sooner or later you've got to call the opponent. We've got to call him and ask him to do some things, and if he says, no, I'm not going to do that, well, then the people will understand. He's really not being sincere. But if he's sincere, good, that helps us. Um, in that regard, I think we need also a mechanism to induce him. Look, I have four children. Now, they're all grown at this stage, but when they were young, I knew that if I told them to do something and there were no consequences, it was unlikely that they were going to do what I told them to do. So what are the consequences to Kim Jong-un of him not doing what he's promising to do? Well, we know he's already violated two agreements he made with Secretary Pompeo in early May. That's out there. We know that. I'm not aware of any consequence he suffered. I think we need to be prepared to do that, but I'm not going to do a military attack. I can't turn up the economic sanctions very much. But he is paranoid about information. He is very worried that that's going to endanger his regime. And I think there are all kinds of information possibilities we could use. And you might say, well, how do you get information into North Korea? We know his elites consume USBs with South Korean soap operas on them. Why aren't we putting commercials on those soap operas? You know, little messages that start simple, like, you know, here's a, North Korea, here's a South Korean hospital. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. Um, South Korea is really very different. Um, we need to be prepared to do some but I think we also need to be prepared to do something serious. And my last point there is something serious. How would Kim Jong-un feel about us doing a new soap opera on the life and times of Kim Jong-un? Where we show his food consumption, his wine, his women, soap purges, and so forth. Why are we tying our hands behind our back 
and not playing the game that he's scared about. Now, I don't think we should do that tomorrow. I think we ought to tell him, look, you've got a year to do CBID. Well, maybe we'll give you two. Um, but if you don't, there are consequences. All right, so I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> great job, Bruce, as usual. Thank you very much. Um, we have three great discussants now that will make comments on both of the papers. Let me just quickly introduce them, um, and then I'll ask uh, Bill to get up to, to give the first one. The first is Mr. Bill Newcomb is a fellow at the Center of Advanced Defense um, Studies. He was a senior. He is a senior economic uh, analyst, and he served in positions at the U.S. Treasury Department, at the State Department, and at the Central Intelligence Agency. And he's also a member of the United Nations Security Council panel of experts on the North Korea sanctions from 2011 to 2014. Bill, thank you for joining us. Uh, our next uh, discussant, Dr. Ru Jacap, who is currently the director of Taishan Institute at Taishan University, and he's taught uh, the theory of international relations foreign policy security strategy at Kyungyang <coughs> University from 1994 to 2007, and the author of over a hundred books that talk about uh, books and articles on war, peace, and strategy and diplomacy in North and South Korea. And then our final discussant, uh, Dr. Ha Namsung, who's a professor emeritus at the Korea National Defense University, has been at Korea National Defense University throughout the majority of his career as both a faculty member there, has served on the Government Advisory Committee, and has advised to the Minister of National Defense, the Minister of Unification, the National Security Council, and the Army Headquarters. He's currently the President of the Korea Association of Military History, and also published many books. So I uh, look forward to each one of your all's thoughts on the two main presenters. And uh, Bill, if I could ask you to start first. Um, well, thank you all very much for inviting me to participate in this conference. It has been truly uh, very, very interesting. The uh, topic for this morning was a very challenging topic. The papers that were presented, if you've had an opportunity to read them, were provocative. And that's very appropriate because that's how you wrestle with the important issues and questions. Uh, rather than just going with conventional wisdom. And finally, the two deliveries we just uh, witnessed, I thought were just very, very effective. I'd like to start off uh, commenting on Dr. Kim's paper. Uh, so he's taking a post-summit view, and quite frankly, it's an alarmed view. Partly, I think, driven by the high expectations everyone had for the outcome of the summit expectations that were not necessarily raised by the participants, but by the media that turned it into a circus. Uh, so everyone was waiting, so to speak, for the uh, white smoke to come out of the chimney, or the black smoke, uh, and they were, I think, rightly disappointed when uh, the results were sort of a, um, a statement that contained uh, no details, and I think they were very concerned when the statement contained language that was used by North Korea over and over. So I, I, I think uh, Dr. Kim was uh, quite right to, to raise this uh, as something that echoes around uh, 
community when everyone's trying to evaluate where we stand and where we're headed. Now, the view of uh, the U.S. in a new Cold War with China, maybe we'll get there. I remember the Cold War. I was working during the Cold War on a lot of different topics. I don't think we're there yet. I view this more in the traditional power confrontation stage, uh, perhaps going back to uh, England versus Germany uh, in the 1900s, late 1900s, early uh, 20th, 21st century. Um, I think that we could develop into a, a Cold War, but I don't think at the same time that it is in either national interest of the US or China to let things uh, develop in that way. And we have mechanisms to avoid having a Cold War develop. And China has interests in preserving the international architecture. Uh, people may not know, but China happens to be a very reliable member of the Financial Action Task Force because having good, sound international banking practices is in China's best interest right now. And that has consequences, actually, for sanctions and sanctions enforcement when it comes to North Korea, which I'll try to mention briefly later. Uh, now, I think he rightly points out that uh, the nuclearization of, of North Korea, or its pursuit of nuclear weapons, has, uh, he says, broke the military balance. Well, certainly it's shifted it. I don't think it broke it, because the South has always had the nuclear umbrella of the U.S. Uh, to offer protection as well. And he says that they've enhanced their diplomatic status since the beginning of the year. And that's quite true. Uh, just look at how the image of Kim Jong-un has shifted. But this is a very fragile game uh, that can be reversed by uh, any kind of provocative action or uh, stumbling on the part of Pyongyang. So I'm not terribly concerned about that. And actually, it may work in the favor of getting an agreement because it, there may be a bandwagon effect that takes place inside North Korea and actually propels things forward in a direction that is more helpful than not. Um, finally, he is very concerned about North Korean strategy succeeding and uh, driving the wedge between uh, the U.S. and the ROK. This has been a long-held strategy. North Korea has always tried to, to work the seams, uh, trying to interfere between the U.S. and Japan relationships, interfere between uh, U.S. And, and China, U.S. and Russia. Uh, back during the Sino-Soviet split, North Korea was doing the same sorts of things, playing to each capital, trying to maximize what it could extract in terms of economic uh, resources and political support. So that's, that's nothing new. We're used to it. I don't think it's uh, a serious threat um, unless uh, we uh, fail to realize that they're actually doing it. I, th I think as, as long as we're quite aware, we're perfectly capable of defending the alliance. China's role is a duplicitous. Uh, he sees a partnership and uh, China actually using, uh, supporting the, the North Koreans in its nuclear pursuit um, I think it's more complicated than that. China does not want to see a North Korean collapse. It wants to preserve uh, the, the split between North and South on the peninsula. It has modulated the kind of economic support it gives to North Korea because it wants to see an economic reform. 
So it gives enough support to prevent collapse, but not enough support to relieve the pressure that the economy, the economic system uh, that North Korea has, needs to change. So it's walking a very fine line there. Also, uh, the bordering province of China are heavily entwined with the North Korean economy. And so there are a lot of jobs and income on the line, and that means Guanxi is at work between the provinces and Beijing. So that complicates things. Uh, at the same time, in terms of China's actions uh, at the UN level, in the Security Council, there was, I've observed, an agreement, uh, cooperation between China and Russia. In the 1718 Committee, China uh, would say something, perhaps critical, and Russia would say, we support the Chinese view. In the 1737 Committee, which was on Iran, Russia would say something, and China would say, we support the Russian view. So there was this, this partnership of supporting each other's interests in this. But at the same time, look at the sequence of sanctions measures that have uh, been imposed by the Security Council since 2006. And you see a trajectory that gets extraordinarily tough on finance, that hammers North Korea's ability to transport uh, on its bottoms using uh, crews and, and so forth. It constrains North Korea's ability to ship by air. Uh, it has more recently gone after uh, a lot of North Korea's uh, most valuable exports. In effect, in the beginning, the Chinese were not very willing to impose these things. You can go back and you can look at the press statement made by the Chinese perm rep following 1718 and 2006. We will never accept inspections of cargo. Well, they do now. Uh, so you can see that over time, as North Korea has uh, resisted international sanctions pressure uh, to pursue its, its WMD programs, that uh, China has agreed to tougher and tougher measures. Its enforcement has uh, swung between being fairly serious and being fairly lax, depending upon the circumstances at the time. Uh, we saw uh, more recently Chinese getting uh, very rigorous enforcement. We're now seeing Chinese relax that enforcement. I think this kind of pattern is going to continue, but China has moved from um, the position it originally struck to one that's much more cooperative with the international community uh, in imposing sanctions on North Korea. Um, the um, scenarios. I mean, what we have is a typical Latin Square approach. <clears throat> What's missing from it are uh, subjective probabilities. And I think if you add subjective probabilities to that Latin Square, uh, you come out doom or gloom. Uh, it, the the uh, chances for an optimistic outcome, I think, are minimal, uh, at least in my view. And then North, uh, the South Koreans need a plan B. Absolutely. Absolutely you need a plan B. You've got you to gotta have something to do in case of failure. You can't just live... Uh, hope. It's like buying a lottery ticket for your retirement. Uh, so absolutely you got to have a plan B. But unfortunately to employ a plan B, you have to direct, you have to be able to direct it at the pressure points. And 
again, unfortunately, regrettably, what I see is the government in Seoul backing away from the two most effective ways to pressure the DPRK into coming to terms. One of them is on finance. They're already talking about economic projects and so forth. That's going to relieve pressure on the North Korean budget. Uh, it's going to add stature to the leadership uh, because they're going to be able to improve transportation and so forth. Uh, so that kind of is um, going against the grain of the current trend of international sanctions, which have moved from being quite targeted back in the direction of being more comprehensive. So it, it, that relieves pressure. What's the other one? The other one, one of the areas that North Korea is most sensitive to, particularly the leadership, is human rights. It hasn't been raised in this conference, really. I don't know why South Korea has a problem handling human rights in North Korea. Why the office was not established quickly and effectively. Why there's no publicity. Why the Committee of Inquiry report has not been widely circulated and published in the press. Where is the criticism of North Korea's human rights? The people in the camps in North Korea, the ones who have that songbook have been moved out of the uh, cities into the rural areas. They were the upper class, the landowners, the middle class. Right? Do you think unification with North Korea, particularly if it's under North Korean terms, is going to mean anything different for South Korean society? I just don't understand what the issue is in bringing this up and making a change. And this is crucially important. And I'll get to that in a moment. Three. Three. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do Russia. Sorry. Uh, finally, in, in the paper, but not in the presentation, Dr. Kim talked about nuclear parity. And I don't know if you left it out of the presentation on purpose or not. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what you mean by nuclear parity, but my answer is emphatically no. Absolutely not. Because that would be another strike against the NPT, which is one of the things we've been trying to save uh, via all the sanctions in North Korea. So I don't think the ROK needs a thumb on the nuclear button. Uh, you know, you, you gave it up back in the 70s. I don't think you need to try and reestablish it. Uh, I think it's totally unnecessary. I'm sorry, Bruce. I'm going to have to hurry through yours because I took so much time. Uh, your focus is on deterrence. Uh, with or without a, a nuclear weapons, they still pose a threat. I think that is a, a key thought, that even if you take away nuclear, chem, bio, the conventional weapons uh, pose a threat. Um, and yes, there is the survival of the regime. And you mentioned Libya as a factor in their thinking. There's another factor in their thinking. That's Romania. People forget that the uh, massacre of Ceausescu and his family during the internal revolt of Romania. And remember, Ceausescu and Kim were that close together. That gives them nightmares to this day. So they are not only concerned about what happens externally, they're very concerned about what happens internally. And so that uh, 
that constrains how far they're willing to go on some of these things. And then the hostility. Well, the hostility is a justification for their continuing the war economy. A war economy that they've had in operation since the early 1960s. A war economy that devotes resources to the Second Economic Committee. And the second economy, which is the whole defense industry, accounts for so much of North Korea's full economy. So when you get around to trying to disband this, you're going to need Nung Lugar. You're going to have to find a way to employ them. If you're taking 500 to 600,000 soldiers out of active duty, where are you going to put them to work? Uh, it's, it's a monumental pro program to try and get North Korea into being a normal state. Um, Finally, uh, the threats, unification. Uh, Dr. Bennett talks about subversion, coercion, force. I think we can defend against force. I don't think we can defend as well against subversion. I'm not worried so much about uh, aggressive coercion, but I am worried about soft coercion because we already see that. We already see North Koreans say, don't raise our human rights problem with us. Right? That's coercion. Uh, and China, right? South Korea does need to stand up to China more vigorously. You gave up a lot of ground in the garlic war, and China continues to take advantage of that. South Korea has a history uh, and a memory of how to deal with China. It's very sophisticated history. But the country then that had to deal with China is not the country today that you have built that, that ranks so high in all OECD statistics. You know? You're not a minnow among the whales. You're probably a shark if you want to be one. You know? Certainly you're a porpoise. Right? So anyway, we've got that, and we've got one new threat, and that's cyber. And cyber can be used in the coercion of South Korea. It already has been attempted. Uh, it's disruptive. It can be used in blackmail. We see them use it as theft. But the coercion part, where, where it subsidizes the other efforts, I think is really, really important. People talk about what happened to Sony. But do you remember the Sands Casino? There are a lot of similarities between what happened to Addison at the Sands Casino uh, and the Sony attack in terms of the methodology. The sands was attributed to Iran. So you have to also look at working through third parties. You can't just be looking at the North. You have to look at the partnerships North Korea has established overseas. And that brings me to, I guess, the final point I want to make, although I have more pages, and that's proliferation. And I see proliferation actually as a much greater threat than a direct attack uh, by the North on the United States. We have uh, North Korea developing these missiles. Uh, Dr. Dr. Kim talked about that particular thing. It's not only to give legs to their weapon systems. They're advertising their capabilities so that they can have a market. Right? They're showing potential buyers that, hey, we can satisfy your strategic needs to improve your force structure. We no longer just provide limited range scuds. We no longer just do repairs to your old Soviet supply T-62s. We can, we can add a lot of firepower, a lot of training. And by the way, as Bruce Bechtel said yesterday, they're getting war fighting experience with chemical weapons in Syria. 
You know, so proliferation, I think, is a huge threat that everyone needs to be concerned about. And I'm sorry for taking so long, but I'll stop right here. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Dr. Kim points out the positive and negative aspect of uh, North Korea, uh, U.S. and South Korea, North Korea submit uh, in the context of South Korean national security. And Dr. Bellis suggests and proposed the alternative deterrence strategy. So, two presentation papers, uh, I think, could uh, logically well combined in order to understand the security situation on the Korean Peninsula, particularly. Now, I am very much interested in Dr. Benefit's realistic suggestions and proposal and Dr. Kim's new bilateral alliance strategies. The key point of Dr. Bruce Bennett's paper seems to me that existing means of deterrence by LAC and US will be inadequate in the situation which North Korea has possessed the weapon of mass destruction, including nuclear, bi biochemical weapons, and ICBM, etc. And LAC US need to develop an alternative strategy. Therefore, major adjustments are needed in U.S. lack deterrence strategy to deal with the developing North Korean threat of conflict involving WMD and to deal with the North Korean disguised peace offensive. I totally and fully agree with him. He suggested some alternatives for strengthening deterrence. deterrence. Here, my point is whether the United States is militarily preparing in the aspect of capabilities, willingness, and strategy for new deterrence. And the U.S. government is really providing real action strategy uh, and uh, action policy and strategy beyond the declaratory one. Second, like U.S. ability to firmly threaten the North Korean regime survival, as you rightly observed, is highly <coughs> effective for deterrence against uh, Kim Jong-un's adventurism for the time being. Therefore, U.S. lack needs to maintain and develop the real operational action strategy beyond the declaratory war. Uh, for militarily distracting North Korean regime, with this kind of uh, firm and strong real action strategy beyond the simple peacetime declaratory war, lack U.S. must exert strong pressure for North Korean regime. The declaratory strategy not based upon the action strategy is empty. In spite of various weaknesses, uh, this pressure could be one of most effective action strategy. However, uh, United States President Trump uh, gives so much concession to North Korea in, in the summit talks. The ongoing working level peace process is likely to lead reduction in the, some real pressure on Kim Jong-un. Thus, the credibility of U.S. action strategy of deterrence may be weakened so much. So I believe that anticipatory, uh, including uh, preemptive and preventive counterforce attack against North Korea with uh, missile and nuclear weapons.
puede ser efectivo, pero si no hay diferencia, la gente corea usa no Korea weapons como preemption. Teoreticamente hablando, la preemption puede tener dos negativos y positivos efectos. El negativo efecto puede ser estratégico y estabilizado. El positivo es estratégico y estabilizado. I think the strategic stabilizing effect is much more than the stabilizing one in both general and poor uh, immediate or overheating deterrence, according to uh, our colleague uh, Pat Morgan's classification of type of deterrence. Uh, Dr. Bennett uh, says that uh, because the North Korean nuclear weapons, weapons forces have apparently matured, the North Korea. Uh, Korean preemptive nuclear attack against the U.S. forces main basis is a possibility when uh, the U.S. prepare the firm and strong uh, willingness, capabilities, even uh, conventional uh, and strategic for deterrence, the North Korea may hesitate its own willingness of preemption in order to prevent uh, total collapse of its regime by the massive retaliation strike by U.S. If so, why U.S. is hesitating the threat of the superior conventional preemptive surgical strike on, on the closely chan concept of center of gravity of the North Korea? First, in the coming near future, after U.S.-North Korean summit talks, the strategic situation may be much changed due to the withdrawal of forward deployed U.S. combat forces in the northern part of Han River into the southern part of the river, Pengtek uh, area. Uh, the tripwire effect to ensure U.S. forces automatic involvement in the early stage of war uh, has been disappeared. And TARD is now not operating and maybe withdrawn in the near future. And U.S. lack combined exercises, including Marine Corps or exercises will be suspended, and the wartime operational control of U.S. LAC combined forces will be transferred to the South Korean military. Even if the North Korean uh, Korea eliminates nuclear, biochemical weapons, and ICBMs, the North Korea's conventional capability uh, are still very strong and lays a serious threat. Uh, so we need. The balance of prudence based upon the firm, strong deterrence capability, willingness, and action strategy. In this situation, what does the United States new government prepare alternative military posture against North Korea and for the role of the Linchipin in the Northeast Asia? By uh, one addition. Dr. Kim is describing today's Korean government with his gentle mind. Uh, now, the South Korean government is not progressive one, uh, but uh, it's uh, more past-oriented and not future-oriented, uh, more leftist-oriented government. So, uh, it's not progressive, but retrogressive, retrogressive, uh, following and supporting the North Korea. If you might, uh, don't mind, would you revise this, this term? 
Concerned soldiers of more than 40 years of service before retirement, I do have more sensitive and imminent feeling of crisis. Driven by this sense of urgency, sense of desperation, therefore, let me show a worst case scenario this morning. To begin with, I do argue that. The ROK should think about getting its own nuclear bombs in order not to be killed or in order not to be slain of the DPRK. Why and how? Let me explain in this way and order. Number one, with the summit between the two Koreas and the US DPRK, in my opinion, the possibility and the opportunity for CVID of the DPRK nukes passed away. Instead of the DPRK's CVID, the term of denuclearization of the entire Korean Peninsula, the long-held DPRK version of mutual nuclear disarmament has been settled down on the joint statement. The DPRK's concept of denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is quite different from the term of the ROK and the US. The ROC US side called the denuclearization as the CVID of the DPRK nuclear warheads, missiles, fissile materials, facilities, and monitoring for the more than 3,000 nuclear engineers and their activities. <laughs> In the meantime, the DPRK called it as follows, to prohibit transit, landing, and visiting of nuclear-capable aircrafts and ships, such as US bombers, aircraft carriers, submarines, to prevent an agreement guaranteeing a nuclear umbrella 
and extended deterrence to the ROK to ban military exercises involving nuclear weapons and finally even to withdraw the U.S. forces that can use nuclear weapons. Symbolically now, President Trump, right after the summit, suspended the U.S. ROC joint military exercises. Number two, even though there must be additional summits and ministerial follow-up talks, the negotiations could be settled down in a way to a nightmare scenario to the South Korean people. <coughs> Why? The history of the DPRK's nuclear crisis shows a consistent pattern in which Pyongyang pushes Washington to meet its demand and Washington makes concessions to Pyongyang. This time, in my opinion, would not be an exception. Against the stubborn DPRK, the U.S. might have two options to bring the deadlock to an end. One is to strike the DPRK preemptively or preventively. The other one is the compromise. Compromise, I say. The result of the compromise would be the nightmare scenario, as I mentioned before. The process of the negotiations would be as follows. The DPRK takes steps <coughs> on their own denuclearization process of dismantlement of the entire present and future nukes except the past ones. With the destruction show of the Pungeri test site, part of the past nukes already were buried in a grave without any verification. The DPRK will be agreed upon the crystal clear dismantlement, which is mainly fit to the US security demand, such as the entire long-range delivery system to hit the US soil, including Hwasang-14 and 15, Musudang, and SLBM. <laughs> The entire existing fission materials and facilities and the pledge of 100% complete non-proliferation of waters, materials, and the technology to the third party. However, the DPRK will not bend to the demand of complete and unconditional verification against some of the concealed nuclear warheads beyond the declared bombs. The US, however, couldn't but make a concession to the DPRK in order to bring the deadlock to an end. It will be a little room to break against the harsh verification. And not long after, President Trump would declare proudly that the US won the nuclear game with the DPRK because he brought about the 100% safe America from the DPRK nukes. And the majority of the American people might be satisfied with that result. This was the way of compromise, 
when the 1994 US DPRK agreed framework settled down, in which DPRK's past nukes were unchecked. In the same way, President Trump would say that someday, okay, we want you pay the Korean side. But in this case, the unknown number of the DPRK's concealed warheads with its Scud and the Northern missiles would be a nightmare to the South Korean people. Number three, upon facing with this national security crisis, the, the ROK couldn't but to get its own nuclear bombs in order to make one-to-one -one correspondence against these DPRK bombs. Yes, somebody could argue that the ROK, with its trade-dependent economic system, cannot withstand against the severe international sanctions. However, let me remind you this episode as an example. In 1966, Pakistan's Prime Minister Zulfikar Ali Bhutto proclaimed that if India produced a nuclear bomb, Pakistan would follow suit, even if the population had to eat grass to the soul. This kind of extreme rivalry could be applied to the situation of the Korean Peninsula once the nightmare scenario turned out to be a reality. Finally, going to the news, the RK bombs should be taken in this manner to ease the US and the international society. I named it as the open door and temporary nuclear armament. Again, open door and temporary nuclear armament. According to this plan, the RK will make 30 Hiroshima-grade nuclear bombs under the close inspection by the international organization. And the ROK will dismantle them in a manner of one-to-one -one correspondence against the DPRK bombs upon the CBID term enforced by the IAEA. However, my final concern is that, indeed, can the South Korean people have this kind of resolute government at the right time? That is my real question. <laughs> I stop here. Thank you for your listening. Thank you uh, for great presentations and great discussion points. Uh, I'll throw it back to uh, the presenters for a very brief, uh, if you want to make any comments on any of the great points that the discussants made uh, briefly, and then we will open it up to uh, questions from the audience. Bruce, if you'd start, please. Sure. Um, let me start by talking about what we do with the North Koreans. If we do this reduction to common ceilings of forces, absolutely, there will be hundreds of thousands of North Korean soldiers out of, out of a job. Um, back in 2013, I wrote a paper on uh, preparing for the possibility of a North Korean collapse. In that, I said, 
don't cut the soldiers loose. Instead, take entire units. Take a unit, take away all their weapons, but leave them organized as a unit and make them a company. You know, an economic company. Initially, their job might be to take care of the roads in three or five kilometers of North Korea. Maybe work on water or electrical power systems. Get them some training. Over time, get them uh, equipment to pave roads and so you don't just have dirt roads. Um, you can't cut them loose and you want them still in the military system because if they desert and go join some kind of insurgency, you want some kind of justice applied against them. So uh, it seems to me there are options there we need to be exploring. Um, I would think that the current Moon administration would be very interested in trying to talk about the realities of this kind of future. What do we be moving towards? Um, I think there's a lot of issues. I mean, think of the commission of the five provinces with all the governors and mayors to take over in North Korea. If you're North Korea, do you view that as a little bit of hostility or a lot of hostility? Um, and does that need to be adjusted to advisors as opposed to replacements? Um, cyber. I didn't talk a lot about cyber in my presentation, more in my paper, but not nearly enough. Cyber is a huge issue. We need to be prepared to take it on and be much more prepared to operate. Our historical approach on cyber has been to assume that the North Korean intranet, internal network, was impenetrable and we had very little ability to reach people on the internet. I don't think that's as true anymore. And I think we have some opportunities there that really need strategizing in action. Um, proliferation is also a huge issue. I think we need to be prepared to tell North Korea there are very simple American laws on things like terrorist action. If you give nuclear technology to Iran and Iran uses a nuclear weapon, you are an accessory. That means you are just as guilty as the party that uses that weapon and will be subject to the same punishment. We need to be trying to establish those kinds of deterrent postures. Do we need a stronger declaratory policy? Absolutely. I think we do. Um, is the U.S. strengthening our capabilities on the peninsula? Um, you probably aren't seeing it all that visibly, but let me guarantee you, there are substantial activities going on to strengthen the U.S. forces' ability to defend against, in particular, the North Korean WMD threats. Those are going on very seriously right now. Um, let me turn to finally uh, North Korean uh, pushing the rock to have nuclear weapons. My concern with rock development of nuclear weapons, of course, is that I think there's very little chance that if the rock develops 30 or some other number of nuclear weapons, that the Japanese are going to sit on their hands and say, no, we don't need some too. Um, and if both our rock allies and our Japanese allies develop nuclear weapons, I think the NPT is likely dead. And the NPT has been our principal means of trying to 
contain nuclear proliferation. Um, but I would also argue, if you develop 30 nuclear weapons, and they're only Hiroshima-sized weapons and so forth, when you get to about 25, what you're going to realize is, wow, these are little small bangs compared to the North Korea's 250 kT. Maybe we need to build some bigger ones, too. And there's a very slippery slope to building bigger, building more. Can we possibly be inferior to North Korea? Don't we need to have more? Um, so what you'd like to plan up front is going to be, I think, very difficult to stick to. And in addition, think about it. Even the 30 nuclear weapons, I'm guessing that's roughly 50 trillion won, something like that. What happens to your defense budget? Is the National Assembly prepared to say, hey, you know, over the next five, ten years, we're going to give you an extra 50 trillion won to build the nuclear weapons, or are they going to take it out of your conventional capabilities? And at the same kind of time, how are the people in South Korea going to sp feel about spending all this money on something you hopefully never will use and are just going to give up? Um, I think the South Korean people are going to say, so why are you doing this? What's the problem? And of course what you've got to say is, well, you know, our neighbors in the north, they're threatening us with nuclear weapons, we've got to be prepared, they're very hostile, maybe the Chinese are too. And oh, by the way, the Japanese have now started building nuclear weapons. And what do you build into? You build into a regional nuclear arms race. It's a, quite a possibility where the hostility becomes what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because you've got a claim to justify it to your population, spending all this money. You've got to claim to the people that this is really needed, that these are real threats. And what are they going to say to your neighbors? They're going to say, well, yeah, but your building, these weapons are also real threats to us. And so you build a degree of hostility which you probably don't want. I can't guarantee that any of that will happen, but I worry that it would. And I think we need to show some care in thinking about the future. Does that mean the United States in some ways needs to strengthen our nuclear umbrella? Absolutely, and I've got several proposals I would be happy to go into. But I think that's probably the better approach to deal with the current crisis. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, all three discussants, uh, particularly Dr. Yukon, uh, gratefully filled every nooks and crannies I didn't feel uh, because of uh, of time or because of my incapabilities. Anyway, you very kindly complimented uh, uh, my paper. Uh, I think uh, what uh, Dr. Hunam Sung suggested at his final uh, part, uh, I think is from his uh, patriotic frustration. Uh, I don't know what he said uh, can come true or not. You know, uh, it sounds invisible and everybody knows that, but uh, it's very important uh, that increasing number of South Koreans are thinking and speaking out of uh, very much patriotic 
frustration. I don't know if this combination of uh, language is right or not, but, uh, but anyway, uh, saying that, uh, I'd like to point out first that there are two things I didn't mention in my presentation uh, because of time limit. The first one is the uh, possibility of a, a further hypothesis about the role of uh, the Trump administration. I already told you that uh, uh, Mr. Trump, President Trump uh, can play a, a role of good cop or a role of uh, just a uh, maker. But still we have a further hypothesis in Korea. Uh, many South Koreans, probably including all South Koreans here in this room, are thinking, oh, was President Trump really that ignorant? Uh, didn't he know that that statement is that uh, unsubstantial? And, and so didn't he notice the language used there in the in joint statement is what North Korea has argued and used for a long time? So we simply don't believe that. We simply don't, we don't want to believe that. Actually, uh, we struggle to believe that President Trump didn't sign that statement without knowing that statement is that problematic. Uh, that means we want to believe uh, the Trump administration must have a very profound <coughs> strategy. Uh, then what the ordinary people can understand. Uh, probably President Trump is simply dealing with North Korea differently, with some unprecedented uh, method to better deal with the North Korea. So this is kind of a third hypothesis. So, so let me wait a couple of months. I think uh, we will see uh, not uh, for long, you know. So anyway, uh, that is what I didn't uh, tell you during my presentation. Okay, another part is uh, Dr. Newcomb already mentioned the nuclear parity, which I mentioned in my paper. Actually, what I try to emphasize in that part is, I want to say to American colleagues, when you shake hands with North Koreans, please look China. Yeah. That was the message I tried to give in, in this paper. You know. China is coming. Uh, someday, I mean, after the disappearance of all North Korea problems, including nuclear ones, uh, then we will be faced with uh, China. Then South Korea will be crossroads. Uh, South Korea, of course, can kneel down in front of uh, uh, increasingly giant China and then try to be absorbed in the Chinese order. That is one choice, of course. Another choice, uh, South Korea stand up, keep standing up, and then uh, live as a part of a free world, the free democratic world, <coughs> under a strong alliance with the Western countries, like the US. Uh, I think what US does is critically important. It's critically important. The, this is the background of what, why I use the, the terminology nuclear parity in Korean Peninsula. Nuclear parity on the Korean Peninsula means uh, either it is possible either by reintroduction of U.S. tactical weapons into South Korean soils, 
or by South Korea going nuclear. But the South Korea going nuclear is unthinkable at this moment. So that's why the only way pursuing nuclear parity in South Korea is redeployment re of the next tactical weapons, you know. So what I mean is I'm not saying in my paper, let's do that today or tomorrow. That's not what I'm saying, you know. We, if we are allies, we can discuss now so that we can pick it up in case North Korean nuclear issues comes back to the starting point and when we see the revival of China, North Korea nuclear collusion. That, that's what I meant here. Uh, that's the way preparing for the future. Uh, then imagine North Korean problem simply disappears. Then we are facing with uh, increasingly strong China and rearming Russia. Then the small countries in Asia are on the crossroad. What will you do as a superpower? What will the United States will do? You know? Probably, probably, now uh, Dr. Bennett said uh, MPD should be kept intact. Uh, personally, I don't agree with that argument. Uh, MPT was uh, already hurt when the U.S. connived at Israeli going nuclear, even though they didn't do any nuclear test, but everybody knows that. That's because the U.S. has a higher level of interest in Middle East by allowing Israel uh, to get nuclear weapons. And also, NPT was hurt again when U.S. recognized India as a de facto nuclear weapon state in 2007. So U.S. did that. U.S. did that. NPT is very precious, important. We know that South Korea should abide by that, but I don't agree it should remain intact in 20 years later. If China is really threatening, then we have to rethink. Probably, U.S may have to ask Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, and other countries surrounding uh, China, please go nuclear and let's unite. This may happen, you know. So, so I'm not talking about today or tomorrow, you know. What I'm saying is, please look China when you shake hands and talk with North Koreans. Uh, I don't know if I'm making myself understood, but anyway, that's my point. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, some great discussions. Um, we have uh, about, uh, I guess, 10 minutes for questions, um, and then I'm going to do the last question. Uh, and then I'll leave five minutes or so for, uh, for John Foley to, to close up, if that's okay, sir? You want to go on with questions? Okay. And um, I'm going to do it, I guess, as it was done yesterday afternoon. Um, I'll take uh, two questions, and then I'll ask the, the panelists here to, uh, to address it. If, if your questions, if you want to direct them towards a specific panel, it's fine. Um, if not, then I'll select it, and both can talk here. We'll start right here, ma'am. Well, I'm Tara Oh. Um, I was here yesterday. Um, I have a... For, when my first question, I'm going to start off what Bruce said, but it's actually a question for Dr. Kim. Um, so Dr. Bennett said that in the um, April 27th uh, agreement, uh, the Panmunjom Declaration, you have to look at what it says about referring to the previous agreements. So it, it's, 
actually refers to, um, well, one section refers to the um, 2007 agreement between Roh Moo-hyun and uh, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-il. And if you look at that, it actually refers to the 2000 summit uh, agreement. And the second item on that agreement is about low-level federation, achieving low-level federation. So, um, Dr. Kim, you mentioned that, and I was wondering if you could talk about the dangers of low-level federation in more detail. Um, just quickly on uh, Dr. Bennett, um, you, you know, you talked about the crucial uh, part of information getting into North Korea, and I absolutely agree. Um, recently, uh, usually around the um, Korean War to the armistice system, June 25th to July 27th, um, they usually North Korea has a lot of propaganda, anti-U.S. propaganda, but this year is strangely missing. So, uh, you know, is that part of can we look at that as part of information, you know, campaign? Okay, first question. Next question. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm Dong Sun Lee from Korea University. I would like to uh, share my thoughts regarding um, Dr. Bennett's uh, presentation. Um, two points. First, um, I think you suggested that we pursue both um, deterrence by punishment and deterrence by denial, and I think it's always good to set priorities first, because ideally we can do, we need to, you know, do both, but, you know, in the real world, resources are scarce, so you need to pick and choose which one you should, you know, prioritize. And, um, and here comes my um, second, actually, um, comment. Um, between those two, I think um, it's better to go for um, deterrence by punishment first, you know, enhance that. And then if we have additional resources, then we can pursue and perfect deterrence by denial. And just because, you know, I think deterrence by uh, punishment is a better option now uh, for, I think, three reasons. I think it's easier, you know. Um, just deterrence by, um, you know, denial is quite difficult because there are so many targets to destroy. And we don't know where they are. And even if we don't, we know the locations, um, they are, you know, probably in hardened silos and in deep inside the you know, mountain tunnels, you know. So, but um, it's pretty simple to understand what uh, Kim Jong-un values. I think he cares most about Pyongyang. I think he doesn't care much about the rest of the country. You know, in Pyongyang, goodies are concentrated. The privileged classes live in. Right? And the regime rise, his family rise in that particular city, and it's easier to destroy that particular you know, city. So I think it's easier. And I think, you know, deterrence by punishment is less costly and less risky. Um, I think deterrence by denial could be quite costly because in order to you know, have those assets to trace and destroy all those, uh, you know, a, a large number of targets would be very, very uh, costly, right? And then especially the kill chain could be quite, uh, you know, uh, risky too because it creates the time pressure 
on not only on our part, but on the North Korean part, which increases the risk of inadvertent escalation. But on the other hand, I think um, deterrence by punishment is less costly and less risky because there is no time pressure, you know, just striking after absorbing a, a first strike from North Korea. And second, I don't think, you know, we need to, um, you know, deploy tactical nuclear weapons to um, enhance the deterrence by punishment or, you know, deploy strategy assets frequently to enhance deterrence by punishment. I think there are many other uh, cheaper ways to actually boost the credibility of deterrence by punishment, say, introducing an institution uh, um, along the line of nuclear sharing, you know, you know, adopting a NATO model, and then just you know maybe you know issue more uh, clear-cut declarations and set up more um, institutions to um, uh, for a closer consultation for the use of uh, nuclear weapons. So I think on that note, I think it's my in a nutshell, I think nuclear deterrence by punishment is a better option. So we need to set a high priority for that option. Thank you. Okay. You want to address that? Okay. Uh, when Article 1 is serious, uh, when the Dr. Penel said the Article 1 of uh, the Panmunjom Declaration is really a serious problem, right? I totally agree. I simply didn't mention it because of time limit, you know. Yeah. Uh, in that declaration, both leaders agreed to implement uh, the past agreement. So this is kind of ridiculous. North Korea violated every agreement. Now they are saying, oh, okay, you should implement the past agreement. It's ridiculous. But what they have in mind is, as Dr. O said, a unification under a lower level of federation. Uh, this language is really, really dangerous. As you know, the United States is a federal state. On the federal system, Political system, army, diplomacy, security, all these things are unified. Only federal government uh, do that. But under the, uh, the lower level federation, that means something like a confederation. You know? So what North Korea has in mind is the keeping of its own political system in North Korea and South Korea. So North Korea continue, maintains their own dictatorial, hereditary dictatorial system. And South Korea is a democratic country. You know. Then think of what happens. Uh, South Korea is very vulnerable to computer hacking. We have all sorts of uh, computer networks, and internet spaces are there, and the constant uh, the person vo voices are, are all there. And uh, well, the youngsters can uh, uh, call the president of South Korea the name of an animal, you know, so nobody punish it. And so everything can happen in South Korea. Uh, but in North Korea, there is no public opinion. You know that. Uh, the, that the people simply do what the leader is, is doing or saying, you know. That there is no uh, internet, the computer internet space, uh, where we can infiltrate in, you know. So we are uh, exposed 
unit naturally vulnerable, and South Korean society will be disturbed, distracted by North Koreans. And so that's why many South Korean strategic planners have long been regarded the, that kind of unification as a stepping stone going to a unification under communism. This, this is the reason why. But uh, surprisingly, the both the leaders agreed that we should <laughs> implement the whole past agreement. Then the, you can remember what they agreed that in the year 2010, when President Kim Dae-jung met Kim Jong-il. They said, our donations will try into the direction of unification on, under lower level of federation. So this is really problematic, really problematic. But, yeah, I simply added. And then uh, regarding what the Dr. Yi Dong-san said, uh, yes, of course, deterrence by punishment is the best way. Yes, of course. Uh, in the year 2010, I worked for one year as a presidential commission for defense reform. In that commission, I myself uh, wrote a, a recommendation paper uh, arguing that South Korea should adopt the Korean version of uh, conventional trial in which a, a deterrence by punishment should play the key role. So is this is theoretically what you are saying is absolutely right. Uh, during the Cold War, the nuclear submarine has been the best uh, deterrent that prevented the outbreak of nuclear war between Soviet Union and the United States. Because it refused the other's preemption because this is going underwater, you know. But still, it has a great deal of punishing capability, you know. Uh, <coughs> so, no doubt about that. Uh, that's the background why South Korean Ministry of Defense finally adopted the KMPR uh, in the late 19, uh, 2016 uh, as a part of deterrence. Actually, added to the already existing K uh, kill chain and, and defense, KMD, KAMD. Uh, so uh, I think uh, we need more time if we uh, discuss uh, more theoretically, but uh, I'd like to confirm that what you are saying is theoretically quite right. <laughs> Um, let me start off by offering a fourth U.S. vision as opposed to the first three that, uh, that Professor Kim has offered. The fourth vision is the U.S. president is trying to give Kim Jong-un every chance to be agreeable. He's going to cut every possible deal to make it look good expecting it isn't going to work out, and then he can take whatever other action he wants to, saying, I tried as hard as I could, and they're just, Kim was not sincere, he was violating. So if that's really his measure, then we're at stage one of that. I would expect that he would be taking a number of interesting actions. So let me just take one example. Monday this week, Chosen Ilbo has an article about North Korea propaganda outlet slams denuclearization demands and says that anybody who talks about CBID is a traitor of the nation. Now, 
Look at the June 12th statement. When it says denuclearization, it says in the spirit of the April 27th agreement. That was put there to say the April 27th agreement says CVID because it was 1992. You go back to that, that's what it is. So it could well be that the administration is setting it up to say Obviously, the North Korean propaganda outlet is calling Kim Jong-un a traitor. He's a traitor because he's agreed to CBID. Um, that would be an interesting development because then the comment would be, is he then going to renounce his propaganda organizations for calling him a traitor? I don't know that we're going to get there, but I think we need a more clever approach we tend to treat Kim Jong-un as 10 feet tall in negotiating, and uh, he has gaps and he has problems that we need to exploit. Um, hmm? There you go, 10 feet around. Uh, on the nuclear side, one of the things we, we worry about with a strategy focused on threatening the regime is that his nuclear system could be set up in some combination of two ways. Historically, we called it fail-safe. If he's dead, nothing happens. Alternatively, it's called fail-deadly. If he's dead, he's given orders that if you no longer hear from him, just go ahead and launch all your stuff. I doubt he's done fail-deadly, but I certainly have no certainty that he hasn't. And so um, I think we need to be a little careful in our planning. That carefulness says we got to hedge our bets. I'm not going to put all my money into punishment. I'm not going to put all my money into denial. I've got to do some of both of them and get a reasonable mix. Now, you say, well, but we ought to be able to take him out. How good are we, were we at taking out Saddam Hussein? You know, much easier target than Kim Jong-un, I would argue. Didn't have the hardened facilities, so forth. Not nearly the information denial that North Korea has. And yet, look how long it took us to track him down. So, I mean, we can argue about should we be threatening him? Absolutely. Absolutely should be threatening him. But I don't think we can only do that. Um, finally, on the Federation issue, worries me to death as well. You know, I think of a Federation where there are three North Korean diplomats and three South Korean diplomats, and Kim Jong-un owns the three from the North and probably one or two from the South. Um, that's not the kind of confederation that I think anybody in the South wants to have. So I think we ought to be trying to make the case to the South Korean people that that kind of, in, of, of arrangement is too dangerous right now. At the same time, we should be doing what we can to undermine Kim Jong-un's credibility. Um, I think it could well be that this administration will, in the not-too-distant future, turn send a letter to Kim Jong-un, kind of like the May 24th letter, very public, that says, we did what you asked us to. We suspended our exercises. Now we want you to uh, reciprocate. 
we need you to suspend the summer and the winter training that North Korea does. If you don't, then, hey, ours are back on. But if you do, then yeah, we can suspend for a period of time. But let's follow China. Freeze for freeze. Let's make it symmetric. And then shortly after sending that letter, I think he, President, also ought to send a letter to Xi Jinping that says, this was your idea. Do you think the North Koreans like it that you were training up in the northern theater potentially to invade the north? You need to do the same thing. You need to suspend your exercises in the northern theater. You know, let's get the Chinese not in a position where they're dictating to us the terms of how we ought to deal, but have to suffer the consequences of putting things on the table. Now, the Chinese could clearly say, no, we're not going to do that. But in the court of world opinion, they're not going to look very good once they step back from that kind of thing. Similarly with the North. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to ask the last questions here, but I'm not going to ask them to you all, but you're allowed to jump in. We're going to do three quick polls here. I'm going to ask the audience, and you have to raise your hand. Uh, the first poll is, what is Kim Jong-un's strategy? Is it goodwill, where he's truly trying to, he's realized he's got to have an economy, he's realized that in order to do that, he's got to give up his nuclear weapons and all that. That's choice one. Or is it truly a ploy where he's got a larger strategy of eventual reunification and splitting the alliance apart and moving down uh, that path? So let me see the show of hands. Everybody raise their hand one way or another. Is he truly trying to denuclearize the goodwill? Hands up for the goodwill, Paul side. <laughs> this is a very interesting audience. So I guess everybody will raise their hand on the ploy that he's, that's the, the, okay. Poll number two, um, from the U.S. perspective, are we true, truly, is President Trump truly the good cop and he is going to do what it takes to make sure that alliances are safe and all and and we, I won't go into the third possibility, but let's just say the third is a way he's doing it to be the good cop, that he really does have a, a master strategy and he's really trying to, to move to be able to force denuclearization. Or is it no, all he cares about is U.S. first, he'll negotiate our alliance away if we get more economic benefit and we're not threatened, and it's truly looking inward. So who thinks President Trump is truly trying to move towards, and his goal, his real objective, is to keep us strong and get rid of the nuclear weapons for the security of the alliances? We've got about a third. And how many people think that, I assume the other two-thirds think that, uh, that he's really just looking out for the United States and is willing to accept a lot less? We'll wait and see. Okay, I'll wait and see. More information. Okay, the last poll, and then I'll turn this over to Jennifer Lilly to, to conclude here. The last poll is, one year from now, when we're meeting again, I'm not sure if the meeting is, where the meeting is next year. One year from now, and we're sitting in this meeting again, where will we be? 
will the three choices, I'll give you the three choices and then you can vote. Choice number one is Kim Jong-un will have done some really concrete things to start denuclearization. He will have given a list, he will have destroyed some facilities, he may have even given over a couple of the weapons. So he's moving down that path. That's choice one. Choice two is the talks have broken down and we're back to where we were six months ago, being very, very strong on sanctions and military options looking at and all that, but we're no longer talking. Or choice three, choice three is we're still talking, but nothing really has happened on the denuclearization side. Okay, choice one, he's really moving along, things have started to denuclearize, Anybody think that's where we'll be a year from now? Okay, how about choice two is talks are completely broken down and we're back pushing hard on sanctions and potentially about ready to do some military options. <laughs> and then choice three, we're still talking, but nothing has really happened. Okay, well I first I'll let me end this panel by saying thank you very much to both of the folks who did this. Thanks for all the discussions. Thank you.